Hi, I'm Kyle. And I'm Jeremy. And we are the Social Ninjas. Hiya! With practice, Jeremy and I have reached the point where social anxiety doesn't control our lives. I went from being anxious to speak to people to speaking in front of hundreds of people without a sweat. That's amazing! I went from being anxious to be able to approach anyone to interviewing celebrities in Hollywood and giving free hugs across the world. Now, we both co-host a podcast where we interview amazing human beings. Which is something I would have been terrified to do in the past. And while we aren't battling social anxiety like we used to, we still have mental health that we work to improve every single day. That's why we created this podcast, to be able to provide valuable information to you on how to feel the best you can and also normalize the conversation around mental health because we all have mental health. And if I don't take care of my mental health, I'm not being the best version of myself. Same here. We all need to take care of our mental health and the Social Ninjas podcast is here to help you do just that. A quick note, we are not health professionals and what we say should not be used in place of or replacement of medication or your doctor. Enjoy the show! Welcome to the Social Ninjas Podcast. I am your co-host, Kyle. Join with me as always, Jeremy. What is up, Jeremy? Hey, Kyle. How's it going? Nice nice to be on this beautiful podcast. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. You're uh, good this time. I'll let you come on again next time. <laughs> yes. <But> anyways, <laughs> we have a very uh, special guest with us today, Dr. David Gruder. What is up? Uh, hey, it's a pleasure to be with you both. And uh, and what I often like to say when people say uh, it's good to have you is, is I say it's a pleasure being had. <laughs> I like that. So uh, for people listening in, can you give us a little background on yourself and kind of what you're doing? Sure. So my my tongue in cheek way of saying my background is that I'm a recovering psychologist and a professional troublemaker. And what that actually means is that in this, in this chapter of my life, as someone who back in the Middle Ages got my doctorate in clinical and organizational development psychology, in, in this phase of my life, what I'm doing specifically with the leaders and influencers and entrepreneurs that I've been assisting over the decades is I'm specifically working to equip those leaders and influencers who are called to help repair and evolve the world with inner, outer, and spiritual skills that enable them to do that effectively without sacrificing their own personal well-being or their cherished relationships. Well, let's just get into us. Can you tell me more about these amazing skills you help these leaders Well, sure. As I imagine the both of you also think, uh, I certainly see massive leadership deficits today 
And I don't I don't care where we're looking, uh, which side of the aisle in politics or uh, outside of politics and other parts of society. I, I think that the old approaches to leading have long died and they have not really been fully replaced yet with effective leadership uh, that that is helping people step into what I call self-sovereignty that serves us all, meaning that uh, that it's about helping people take charge of their own lives, self-sovereignty, in a way that is not so narcissistic and self-centered that they're they don't care about the impact that they have in the world on the world around them. So it's really a both and in contrast to the uh, prevailing mindset that has created so much divisiveness and political polarization, where we on one side, we've got people who are saying the, the, the thing that is most important, or maybe even the thing that the only thing that's important is personal freedom. And we have other people saying, no, the thing that's most important, or maybe the thing that that's really the only thing that's important is the common good, is social responsibility. And this kind of divisiveness is a complete perversion of the original vision of what a free society is. Uh, back in 2008, I coined a word in one of the books that I've written, and the word is free responsibility. Because there is no word in the English language that captures the intersection of freedom and responsibility. And the problem is that freedom without responsibility is narcissism and responsibility without freedom is tyranny. They, they have to utilize each other. There has to be collaboration between freedom and responsibility in order to have healthy people and a healthy society. That's the short version. Wow, and how do we do this? Like, what's that old way, and how do we how do we make this transition? I really want to know. <laughs> solve all the problems, David. <laughs> well, you know, the old way was based on the illusion of scarcity, and the thing that grew out of that illusion of scarcity was uh, belief that in order for me to have, I have to make sure that you have less. So it's, it's a virus of dysfunctional versions, pathological versions of competition based on the delusion that there's scarcity. I was, to give, give you an example of that, in the last decade, uh, no, two decades ago now, we're in 2020 as we're recording this, Back around 2004, 2005, I was brought over to Geneva, Switzerland by two organizations for the purpose of training a group of World Trade Organization ambassadors in collaborative negotiation skills, because the only style of collaboration, I'm, I'm sorry, of negotiation that they knew was either coercion I make you do what I want you to do. And if I'm really good at that, I'll have you believing that it's for your own good or compromise where compromise is you give a little and I go give a little, but really the best attainable outcome with compromise is that everyone walks away from the negotiating table feeling equally ripped off. 
And so even though there are people, more people today than ever before who believe in collaboration rather than coercion or compromise, very few people actually have the skills that are necessary to effectively collaborate. So collaboration becomes something that's you know, true, but not useful. It's a nice idea, never been tried. Gotcha. So <clears throat> changing gears just a little bit, what about for people who maybe want to be in a leadership role? How do we, or how do they train themselves to step in, I guess, that that right path from the beginning instead of learning this new bad way and trying to relearn the uh, older way? <laughs> Great question. So, you know, there, there's kind of a roadmap that I have developed around that. And the roadmap has five stages to it, if you will. And the first stage I call spot the spell. So from how I see it, our society and, and really much of the planet, as far as I can tell, is under a spell. We're, uh, we are operating with a faulty happiness formula, a faulty health formula, a faulty governance formula, a faulty uh, uh, societal formula, really. And, uh, and, and there's, an old, there's a saying in my home fields of integrative health and psychology, which is that Treatment without diagnosis is malpractice. So for leaders to want to lead who don't understand the spell that society is under, they're trying to intervene. They're trying to lead without knowing what the problem really is or what's, what's at the root of the problem. And that is leadership malpractice. So the first step is recognizing what the bloody spell is that we're operating in right now. Uh, an example of a spell would be people accepting the notion that divisiveness and polarization is just unavoidable and we have to live with it. And uh, and if you don't believe the way I believe, then I'm going to cut you out of my life. That's a spell. That's Is it okay if I curse on this show or no? Yeah, it's bullshit. It's total bullshit. Uh, but it's been bought by so many people, even if they don't know that they've bought into it at the level of words. So spot the spell comes first. And what comes second is that leaders need to align with, with their design, with our design as human beings. We all have a fundamental core architecture of human beings that we've moved way, way, way apart from. And I can go into the details of that if you want in, in a moment, but maybe what I should do first is just say briefly what each of these, these five stages are. The third stage is to, is to strengthen their underpinnings because what happens with a lot of leaders is that they're so um, involved in trying to change the world or in trying to lead that they go into self-neglect and relationship neglect. So they sacrifice themselves and they sacrifice their cherished relationships. And oftentimes they sacrifice their integrity in order to lead. So they've got to strengthen their underpinnings. And then the fourth stage is about embodying source power. And what I mean by source power 
is the forms of power that we have within us that are not ego power. They're not ego based. They're really power that's used wisely in service to higher wisdom and service to love. And then the final step is to be a catalyst of super change where leaders, many, many leaders that I have come across, they know how to take charge, which is their crazy ass version of what leadership is, but they don't know how to facilitate problem solving. They don't know how to facilitate the elevation of collaboration and problem solving so that everyone that they're quote unquote leading is participating from their highest engagement and their highest brilliance. So um, that's, that's the fifth step. So I can unpack any parts of these that you might be interested in if you're even interested in deeping, deeper diving into those. Uh, I'm interested just in a, a general standpoint. Um, I'm having to hire a new employee at my nine to five job starting on, on Monday. So this is kind of like a, a cool topic to kind of, kind of get in at least personally for me, but <laughs> cool. Can we can we use that as a specific example? Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. All right. So there are the usual ways of uh, of interviewing people and deciding whether to hire someone or not, and hopefully, among the things that are looked at, uh, have to do with the person's. Uh, capability to learn new things and the skills and talents and experience that they bring to the job that are that are right matched with the job. Obviously, there are, there are all of those things and recommendations and stuff like that. Uh, and there's there's also a level of who they are as a human being that's equally important. And when I'm working with executives and business owners around the question of hiring. One of the things that, and I and I hope that the person that you're going to be interviewing isn't listening to this, <laughs> or that this gets broadcast after you do the interview, because one of the things that I encourage interviewers to do is to ask an open-ended question that goes something like this. Tell me about a conflict at work that you were involved in, in one way or another, or affected by, and Tell me how it got resolved and tell me what you learned. So do you hear how open-ended the question is? It's open-ended on, on purpose because the way the question is wording doesn't give away what answer is being looked for. You with me so far? Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. So what you're looking for in the answer really has not so much to do with what the circumstance was or you know, whose fault it was or any of those kinds of things. What you're listening for in the answer is whether or the extent to which the person is telling you, the person you're interviewing is telling you what their unintended part was in the conflict, what impacts, what negative unintended impacts their part in the conflict had, what they did to repair those unintended negative impacts to the extent that they might have been repairable. And most important of all, you're listening for them telling you what they learned from that conflict in terms of their commitment 
to handling future similar situations a doable step better next time a situation like that occurs than they knew how to the last time around. In other words, you're listening for self-responsibility. If what you hear instead is a narrative about how it was everyone else's fault and I was an innocent victim and all of that kind of stuff, I don't care how qualified they are technically for the job, run Toto, run. Because they don't know jack about self-responsibility. And you don't want unself-responsible people in your business culture because they'll kill your culture. That's kind of the short version of that. Is that useful in any way? Yeah, yeah, I like that a lot. I mean, um, just in general, I like to keep all questions open-ended, but I do like the getting them to talk about that conflict. And I like how you said phrasing it in a way where it's not like, here's the answer I'm looking for. Cause that's the, I think that's like one of the trickiest parts is, is people, you know, they put on that fake personality or they're giving you that, you know, that kind of person that isn't like realistic. And so it's kind of hard to like decipher like, okay, who's this person going to really be, or how are they really going to perform? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, the questions have to be open-ended. But in my experience, most uh, most often, there isn't an open-ended question that gauges how self-responsible a person is. So what, is that que- what is that answer you, you want to get from them in that question? What I'm looking for in their, in their story is... I'm, I'm wanting to hear from them that they had a recognition that they unintentionally had a part in the conflict. Wow. And underline unintentional because among well-intended people, we don't, well-intended people don't wake up in the morning and, uh, and ask themselves, how can I, you know, how can I shoot things to shit today? They don't, we, we, we don't ask those kinds of questions. When we make, when we make mistakes, when we're well-intended people, it's simply because there's a disconnection between our good intentions and our impacts, where the impact we've had is not aligned with the good intention we held. And so what I'm looking for in self-responsibility is people who are able to look at themselves, not with shame. It's not about beating oneself up. If you get someone who's a self-beater upper, run as well, because shame will kill a culture too. I'm looking for people who are able to say, yeah, um, we all played a part in that conflict. And the part I played without even knowing it beforehand was... I, I did this when, in hindsight, I realized it would have been better if I had done that instead. Um, and, and I see that because I did what I did, I, I helped to escalate the conflict. I helped to make, make things worse. I, the impacts that my mistakes made had these kinds of effects on the situation. And what I learned from that was that in similar future situations, what I'm going to do differently is this and this and this. That's what I'm looking to hear from people. If I hear victim stuff, if I hear shame stuff, if I hear blame stuff, I'm out. They're not, they're not a right match, no matter how competent for the job they might be on paper. 
Is that responsive to what you were asking? Yeah, I'm, I'm, now I'm curious. <laughs> brought up another question within that answer, and that's uh, um, what, what is it that brings someone to shame, and why is that something you want to stay away from? Ah. So what brings someone, let's, let's start off by distinguishing between shame and guilt. So guilt says, I made a mistake. Oops, I've got something to fix. I've got something to repair. Shame says, I am the mistake. And I'm irredeemable and I'm never going to measure up and I'm an empty I'm an empty hole that you have to feed. You have to constantly validate me because I don't know how to heal my own shame. So I got to suck off of your validation in order to feel marginally good enough. And so that kind of shame is not fun to be around. If you've ever been around someone who lives from that shame place, it's it's not good, uh, fun and it's not good for a culture. Now, people who are awake about their shame and are sharing with us how they're actively working to free themselves from it, that's a whole different story. But someone who's locked in the spell of shame is big trouble in a business. So I, I need to ask this because <laughs> it's burning up. And I've been around people who in the, are in that I am mistake. And I've always been curious how to support them out of that if they're open to it. Ah, great question. So let's look at what the core or the root of shame is. And what I'm about to share with you is something that for decades I have brought into the training that I also do in part of my career where I, where I train and mentor therapists, psychotherapists. And when I share with them what I'm about to share with you, virtually every one of them looks at me wide-eyed and says, how come we didn't learn that in grad school? How come we didn't learn that when we were being trained to be psychotherapists? Shame is a child's version of empowerment. So I'm going to unpack that, but I'm going to say it one more time because for some of your listeners, that might be a mic drop moment. Shame is a child's version of empowerment. And here's what that means. When I'm a child, now I'm talking about being a young child where it's, it's not possible yet to look around at our caregivers and say, this, these folks are dysfunctional and I'm out of here. We're too young to do that, right? So when we're young children and we're not getting what feels like love to us, so I, let me define that real quickly. There are lots of ways to love a child and that are the, lots of things that are loving to offer a child, like a roof over their head and clothing and healthcare and, and food and you know, lots of things, lots of things. Of all of those things that are loving to offer a child, only three things feel like love to a child. Heart connection, validation, and safety. When a child doesn't feel enough of those things, they are faced with a huge dilemma, which is the dilemma of how do I get those things? Because when children have severe deficits of heart connection, validation, and safety, they get psychologically wounded. They get psychologically damaged. So in our innate genius as children, 
when we're not getting enough of what feels like love to us, here's the story we tell ourselves to save our lives. And we tell ourselves this story, not in these words, because I'm going to give you the wording in adult language, but we tell ourselves the equivalent of this story intuitively out of our, in, uh, out of our innate genius. We say to ourselves, there's got to be more love here than I'm getting. And all I have to do is figure out how to get it. There's got to be more love here than I'm getting. And I just have to figure out how to get it. So in order to figure out how to get that love, that's, a, that's called a happy ending fantasy. That's what I call it. And we treat it not as a fantasy. We treat it as reality. There, there's more love here than I'm getting. So the first thing we have to do is we have to set out on a hero's journey or a heroine's journey to figure out the rules to follow in order to get the love. And there are two sets of rules we have to figure out. One set of rules is what do I have to cover up or change in me in order to get that love? And the other set of rules I have to figure out is how, how can I make things easier and more comfortable and better for them, the, my caregivers, the people I'm looking to love from uh, for, um, so that they'll be more okay and, and then I'll get, them, I'll get the love. So I have to figure out those two sets of rules. And so I develop an internal librarian that keeps track of the rules that I'm trying to figure out. And that internal librarian over time turns into an inner critic. It starts thinking that it's the boss of us. And it starts shaming us proactively. It starts criticizing us proactively so that, because if we hurt ourselves, it hurts less than if someone else hurts us. So it, it thinks it's the boss of us and it's, it's the tyrant. It, start, it, it turns from a critic, a, a, a librarian into a critic and it starts um, beating us up with the rules. Now, what goes along with that, that contributes to shame, is that as we're figuring out what the rules are about what to cover up or hide in ourselves, we have to find a way internally to lock those parts of ourselves away. And there are actually two aspects of what we lock away. There are the parts of us that we, we learn are not acceptable, are quote-unquote bad. We learn from other people, oh, I can't show that part of me. That's a, that's a, a, a negative bad thing. I can't show that. I can't show anger, for example, uh, or I can't show fear or whatever it might happen to be, sadness. Um, and the other aspect of ourselves that we find a, a way to hide is the golden sides of us that we discover are too much for other people. So for most of us, there are brilliant parts of us, brilliant sides of us as children that some people around us, they may be in our own family or they may be adults in school or adults at our, our family's place of worship, that when we show our light, some part of our light, it's too much for them and they, and they, they cringe and they, they, they recoil and they, they pull back or they get defensive. So we put parts of ourselves that we think are quote unquote bad in hiding, and we put certain parts of part of, of ourselves that are wonderful, but are too much for other people into hiding. So can you see from the rules and hiding parts of ourselves in a, like a, a metaphorical Pandora's box that 
This is the anatomy of shame. This is all about shame. But the reason we're doing this is to empower ourselves because we're trying to get the love that we're not getting. And imagine a young child saying to him or herself, yeah, I'm not getting, I'm not getting what feels like love to me. They must be too wounded to give it to me. What's a little kid to do if that's what they tell themselves? Then, then where are they going to get the love from? The only way to keep hope alive as a child is to make the problem me. To make the problem myself. Because if I'm the problem, I can do something about it. If they're fucked up, what am I going to do? I'm a kid. I don't have any power to, to clean them up to fix them. I can't do that. I could try, but it's not going to work. No, I got to make me the problem in order to survive. Wow. I just got goosebumps because <laughs> I've had it so often where I'm talking to someone and they're in the best, they're not in the best mood. They're not being very engaging, etc. And I totally blame myself. Like what is wrong with me? Why aren't they being friendly and fun? with me? Am I doing something wrong? And then I, I find out later that they were kind of just going through a hard time and they're, they're shy and nothing to do with me. Yet I was attacking myself so much. Yeah, absolutely. And, and all you're describing, Jeremy, and you're describing it beautifully, is a habit that you developed when you were younger because it's, it served your survival. And the thing about habits is that in order for them to be habits, they have to become automatic and unconscious. And what that means is that by the time we become adults, we have been practicing those survival habits for so long that we have forgotten that that's how we survived. And we instead think that's who we are. It's not mm -hmm. who we are. It's how we survived. These are habits that we, that we need to bless ourselves for having been intuitively brilliant enough to have invented when we first developed them and to give ourselves permission to outgrow them because we don't need those anymore because we've got far more skills at our disposal now than any child could ever have back when we first developed those habits. Wow. Now, I'm curious if we could dissect this really quickly. Today, actually, and I'm going to talk about a trigger I had, even though it's kind of vulnerable. Um, I organized a really cool group Zoom call, and it was amazing. It was actually, it turned into a mini MKP meeting. We went around, and I was I was like the 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 king in a sense, and I was going around where I was like having letting people share and just like honoring people, et cetera, et cetera. Before nice. the meeting, I put the Zoom chat in a, a uh, like a WhatsApp group, like a self-love WhatsApp group, and I put it in there for anyone who wants to join. And I, I did that. And after the meeting, which turned out beautifully, I get a message from one of the girls in the chat, like, hey, why are you putting the Zoom in there? Um, can you not do that kind of thing? She like, is she, yeah, she kind of, in my judgment, kind of guilted me for, and made me feel bad for putting this Zoom link into the group chat, even though it was so positive and I got triggered. Like here I am, I so well-intentioned trying to bring people together and make people help people or hold the space for people to feel good about themselves and et cetera. And here I'm getting this girl kind of attacking me for putting a Zoom link in the, in the chat. I'm curious your take on this. <laughs> mm -hmm. Did she 
I'm imagining the answer to this is no, but just in case the answer is yes, did she tell you what her objection was? Um, her objection was like that. That's a good question. <laughs> she may not have. I, like I say, I imagine the answer is no. She didn't. But yeah, I, I want to check. Did, did she? Did she tell you, or she didn't? No. Right. It's... Okay. So we we human beings are storytelling machines. We invent stories at the drop of a hat. And this this is all part of answering your question. Uh, there there's a saying among. Um, people who uh, study the brain, neurobiologists and neuropsychiatrists and neuropsychologists, that the brain is wired for closure. And what that short that phrase means in the neuro uh, in the neurology world, the brain study world, is that our brains are in an agitated state when we don't have a story about a situation we're in that makes sense to us. And as soon as we can tell ourselves a story about a situation that, uh, that we're in that makes sense to us, our brain comes to a state of rest. We start to feel okay in our brain. So here's this, this girl who is telling herself a story about what you putting that link into the Zoom chat meant. And the story she was telling herself I can pretty well guarantee, even though I have no idea what that story was, was not the story you were telling yourself about why you put that link in the Zoom chat. Because if she had been telling herself the same story you were telling yourself, she would have said, thank you. Really cool. That's great. But she was telling herself a completely different story, and she didn't disclose what that story was. But it was a story with a negative spin. Yeah. And a person who carries shame is going to blame shift. So they're going to want someone else to be the fall guy for their discomfort. So she picked a person, a perfect person to do blame shifting because you came into the Zoom call with pre-existing shame. So she lays a trip on you and you go, oh yes, you picked the right guy. I'm the person to lay that on. It's a match made in hell. So what's the, what's the better approach next time if I, because I, I, I'm sure I'm going to go through this half sure. it happens. So one of, the, one of the things that I really teach leaders about is the importance of providing context. And what I mean by context is that when you're going to deliver a message or a decision that's been made or things along those lines, that you enable people to understand what the intention was that led to that decision. So that's what I mean by context is that It's not about justifying or explaining or any of that nonsense. It's it's about informing people with information that they deserve to have. So um, uh, how that would sound is uh, what I'm about to do is put a link in the Zoom chat that links people to, and then fill in the blank with whatever that is, 
so that, and then you, you describe what the good intention is, what the, what the purpose, the good intention being behind putting that link is. So you're providing context, not just the link. And it doesn't have to be lengthy. It can be a context statement can happen in 30 seconds. But it gives people a way to tell themselves an accurate story about what your actions meant, rather than to make up a story about what your actions meant that may have nothing to do with your intentions at all. Noted. (laughs) (laughs) I like the uh, real life examples. Um, Going going back just a minute, when you're talking about uh, shame, you said you were talking about the librarian and then kind of acting as like a a self-critic inside you. I don't want to say, how do we get rid of the self-critic, but how do we work with the self-critic to where it's not providing shame to ourselves? Beautiful. Yeah. I have a, a whole four-step process that I, that I take people through in getting the upper hand on their inner critic that I developed uh, back in the early nineties, because I had a vicious inner critic. I grew up with a vicious inner critic. I grew up with a vicious outer critic, actually. One of my parents was really good at that. So I had some good role modeling for creating my own inner critic. And, um, and uh, the, the, the key to getting the upper hand with our inner critic is, first of all, recognizing that our inner critic is a part of us that we developed a long time ago for survival purposes, and that it's outgrown its usefulness in its current form. So it's not about beating ourselves up for having an inner critic. It's about the opposite, really. It's about blessing ourselves for having been intuitively bright enough when we first invented our inner critic to develop that part of ourselves for survival's sake. So there's a compassion piece that's involved. And that compassion piece is important because when we have that compassion, we don't have to beat up our inner critic anymore. It's just a part of us that's never grown up. And that then leads to the question of of what do we do with our inner critic? Because some people try to kill off their inner critic. Good luck there. It's a part of us. It's not going to get killed off. They try. Other people try to debate their inner critic and prove their inner critic to their inner critic why their inner critic is wrong, and they won't get off it until their inner critic admits, "Oh yeah, I was wrong. You were right." And inner critics won't do that. So that's a, a fool's game too. The thing to understand is that our inner critic was was meant to develop into a treasured part of who we are, a treasured part of our inner community of self. And that treasured part is our inner steward. What a steward is, archetypally, is the keeper of stability, predictability, organization, and standards. The steward, a healthy steward is not a tyrant like an inner critic is. It's not a shamer like an inner critic is. The steward is holding the keys to predictability, stability, um, and, and standards in service to helping us live our mission in our lives 
in a good way, right? So what our inner critic does instead is our inner critic is our, is our inner propagandist. It's a spin doctor. What it does is that it takes a grain of truth and wraps that grain of truth with the cloak of shame and blame. And in retraining our inner critic, one of the things that we learn to do is to recognize what the grain of truth is or the pebble or the boulder of truth is in what our inner critic is saying and to bring that grain or pebble or boulder of truth to whatever for us is a source of inner wisdom for people who are metaphysically or spiritually oriented, it would be their higher self. For people who are religious, it might be God or a representation of God. For people who aren't um, particularly spiritual, it could be simply the wisdom of nature, the wisdom of the universe. But something that is wiser than our seemingly separated selves that are being overrun by a shaming, blaming inner critic. So that that grain or pebble or boulder of truth can be reframed through the eyes of love and wisdom rather than through the eyes of hate and shame. And the more we do that, the more we're training our inner critic to grow up into what it's meant to be in us which, as I said before, is an inner steward, not an inner critic, a valued advisor, but not the king or the queen, not the sovereign. It's an advisor to the king or the queen. But what an inner critic is, is a flawed advisor, not the final authority. And it's crucial that we recognize that and that we retrain our inner critic into being an inner steward. Is that named in a way that makes sense or did I kind of blow it on that one no that was good um so you're saying are we training the inner critic to become an inner steward or is it more of like a reframing the critic to a steward or is there we are retraining our inner critic to become an inner steward by showing our inner critic how to take its grains of truth and cloak them with the clothing of love and wisdom rather than the clothing of hatred and shame and blame. <laughs> I'm at a loss for words. This is, yeah, this is like, this is, it sounds like a combination of voice dialogue and inner and, uh, and uh, child, what was it called? Ah, inner child work? The inner child work and uh, voice dialogue. Voice dialogue, yes. So I'm a real fan of voice dialogue. Uh, that um, that was something that was developed by Helen Sidra Stone. And their most well-known book, which is a gem of a book to this very day, is called Embracing Ourselves. All three separate words, Embracing Ourselves. And it's a great beginning guide to voice dialogue to uh, to recognizing the different parts or aspects of our community of self and getting them collaborating with each other rather than warring against each other. If you wonder why there's so much war on the outside, so much divisiveness and polarization, it's because we have a society of people who look like adults 
but they have an inner child's world where their community of self is at war rather than in collaboration. And so they outpicture that and they create that same kind of inner war out there with other people. And it's all fixable. <laughs> so wanted to ask you one question we like to ask all our guests is if you had the ability to send one message to everybody in the world, what would it be? Ah, my message would be that the time has come to recognize that the things you've been taught about how society is supposed to function are a spell. And it's time to wake up to the spell, to wise up to what our true human nature is, and to step up into being self-sovereigns that serve us all. You look like you had to think about that for a minute, but man, it was like you wrote that down answer in advance. That was so smooth. <laughs> no, I, I, I did have to think about it because whenever I'm asked a question, I the first thing that I do is I check with my higher wisdom for what, what answer am I called to offer today under these circumstances. And sometimes it takes me a moment or two for the, for the information to start flowing through. And once it does... Um, sometimes it sounds similar to things I've said in the past. Sometimes it's really different from what I've said in the past. Sometimes it's a combination of things I've said before and things I've not said before. So it's very entertaining for me <laughs> to see what comes out of my mouth or to hear what comes out of my mouth. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, yeah, uh, that's, that's probably the most notes I've taken in an interview. <laughs> <laughs> right up there. <laughs> There's going to be a quiz later. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. I I'm curious, uh, you you train uh, psychiatrists and everything, and I'm curious what the, I know, usually you don't ask a question beyond that question, and Kyle's like, what are you doing? We already asked the final question. <laughs> but what, what is like the big thing you facilitate psychiatrists in that they usually right. need support in? Well, so to be clear, what uh, the, the people I primarily facilitate are leaders and influencers and entrepreneurs. Okay. But in, in a slice of my career, I also uh, train and mentor psychotherapists. So they may be psychologists or psychiatrists or social work, clinical social workers or marriage and family therapists or, uh, or um, uh, pastoral counselors. And, uh, and so... What, what I do with them is that I basically fill in the blanks in what they didn't learn in their training. And for some people, that's, uh, that's learning uh, about these, these different aspects of our childhood survival plan and, and what shame really is and stuff like that. For other helping professionals, for other mental health professionals, it's, uh, it's about learning something called systems theory because some helping professionals have only been trained in how individuals work rather uh, and not so much trained in how 
individuals who are in systems work, whether the system is a family or a community or a business or a government or a society, how systems work. So I often will train therapists in systems theory. And most often I train therapists in how to function as entrepreneurs rather than get stuck in uh, in kind of chasing their own tails, trying to constantly find new clients and feeling like uh, the, the only way that they can make more money is to increase their fees or work more hours. And they don't like either of those options because they don't want to price themselves out of the market. So they don't want to increase their fees and they don't want to work more hours or they won't have any kind of life for themselves. So oftentimes therapists and integrative health professionals will bring me in to help them learn how to function as entrepreneurs because that's not something that they're trained in, in, uh, in their professional training. There aren't enough hours for them to learn that on top of their craft. Mm, that makes sense. Um, cool. So, um, what are some of your books out there you would like to, that, um, you like to either promote or get the word out on? Right. Well, uh, so over the course of my career, I've been involved in various capacities with 24 different books, but I'm really, I've taken my books out of print because my most updated material from those books is actually in online courses. So what I really want to uh, do is, is have people look at my online courses and they can get to those through um, they, it's, it's called the Gruder Academy, the Dr. Gruder Academy, and they can get there through going to my main website with a specific, um, uh, added link, uh, or added extension. It's, it's drgruder.com. That's D-R-G-R-U-D-E-R.com slash academy forward slash academy. Drgruder.com forward slash academy. And they can also look at the drgruder.com website because that's my main website and that has a, a whole bunch of information on the various things that I'm involved with. Beautiful. Well, thank you very, very much, very, very much from my heart um, to yours and Kyle's. And um, yeah. My pleasure. <sighs> my pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. And I really hope that your listeners have found some value in bits and pieces of what we've covered today. And I'll look forward to hearing from the two of you about what your listeners' response to the show is. Absolutely. Um, if you're listening, hey, listeners, I hope you took some notes. Uh, and uh, if, you <laughs> if you want to learn some more, go to check out his, uh, his Dr. Dr. Gruder Academy. And um, until then, we'll see you all next week.